Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft reading series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in our workshops that hovers around a given theme. They happen once per eight-week session, every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers in workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of Draft 26.0 is American Dreams and Nightmares, and the draftees are Corey Dahl from Intermediate Short Story, Ryan Dingus from Screenwriting, Cameron Snyder from Non-Traditional Forms, and Neil Kurlicki from Noir, or, as we say, You Can Always Go Darker. Hi, everybody. I'm Mike Henry. I'm the Executive Director at Lighthouse Writers Workshop. This is the lovely Andrea Dupree, Program Director at Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Give her a hand. Yes, yes, of course. Um, we're here for the draft 26.0, which means we've had 25 of these before, um, and no one has been seriously injured yet, so it's pretty good. So don't worry, you're going to be okay. Um, we have an, a, a, a wonderful lineup tonight. Do you know um, what the topic is? Um, I forget, so I think, it's call, I think it's forgetfulness. No. No. American dreams and nightmares. <laughs> Did that come through on the... Do you want to do it again? And nightmares. Wish we could do like the little re- reverb or something, and that could just echo out. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Um, I think that's all I have to say. Are we ready to start the reading? I think we can. All right, let's go do that. I'm gonna go grab a beer. Wait, my beer's right over here. Um. Okay. So the the theme again: American dreams and nightmares. Um, we have four different instructors who have. Um, conscripted their students to come up and against their will read works in progress that they saw, they glimpsed in their workshops. This isn't meant to be like an indictment of everybody else in the workshop, but it is meant to be a celebration of these four writers and it's supposed to make us look cool. So um, we're excited about that. Um, The first instructor who, who conscribed, Conscripted. conscripted, I think it should be conscribed, someone. (laughs) Thank you. Is uh, Benjamin Whitmer. Um, Those of you who are Facebook friends with Benjamin know he has been celebrated across the nation of France for about the past month. Um, His novel, Cry Father, is a Colorado Book Award finalist this year. I wish it was a vote thing. We would say vote now. Vote often for Ben's uh, novel, Cry Father, which just came out in paperback. So now is the time, you cheapskates, to go get it. (laughs) He's also the guy, like, if marauders come to Lighthouse, I feel really good about having him in our corner. He teaches noir fiction, and he is going to come up and introduce his, his student, Neil. Come on up. I have a notebook because I can't remember anything. And fuck moleskins, by the way. This is what you want to get. It's a cool. I can hold it in my pocket and it gets sweaty and there's rain and shit and it doesn't matter. It's cool. That's my daughter. She's heard. 
she's heard everything you could possibly say. So don't worry about it. But we're actually, uh, just to apologize, we're going to have to cut out after Neil because i got to get these kids home. we got swimming and stuff tomorrow. But So I'll do some swearing, and then we'll listen to Neil do some swearing, and then we're going to head out. So I do the noir session, and uh, it's kind of, we're the American Nightmares half of this portion. (laughs) We don't really do fedoras, and we don't even do cigarettes anymore because the kids made me quit. So, but we do do nightmares. We do sort of tragedy, uh, if that makes sense. And Neil is a great example of what it is that we do. He's one of the best writers I've had, and I've had pretty much stupendous writers throughout this entire thing. That's amazing. There's one right there, too. (laughs) But, um... Let me think. So uh, Neil is, I looked him up, I Googled his ass, so I could do a proper introduction. I'm still probably going to fuck something up. But he is a writer, an artist, and a private escort. (laughs) So you guys uh, do with that once you want afterwards. I won't be here. Um, (laughs) He's also a graphic designer, and actually a hell of a graphic designer. He's done stuff with everybody from Coors to uh, the Cartoon Network. Disney. He's also starting his own comic book. It's not out yet, right, Neil? It is out. It's on Comixology. Oh, it is out. So I guess I didn't Google deep enough. <laughs> right. So it's, uh, it's called 121 Doses, or 120 Doses. I can't count. I'm an English guy, not a math guy. You go over two digits, I'm lost. I got no idea. Um, he's also been published around. He's been published in Thug Lit which is a great noir uh, magazine. If anybody hasn't read it, it's $1.99 on Kindle. It's stupendous. Uh, run by Big, ba- Big Daddy Thug, Todd Robinson, <laughs> one of my cohorts in France. Um, and also in an uh, anthology called Burnt Tongues, which was hand-selected by Chuck Polnyak, right? Yes, sir. The, the guy who did Fight Club. <laughs> so Neil's been around. He does some of this stuff, and he's really good at it, and I hope you like him. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Whitmer, for that intro. <laughs> appreciate And Ben stayed sober for that whole thing. I appreciate that. Um, this piece is from a novel that's in progress, and it was something um, not 100% sure on, and it was you sort of submitted to the group, and you hope that somebody likes it, and it seems like people liked it. So I appreciate Ben giving me the opportunity to read this for you tonight. Everybody hear me all right? We good? All right. The intruder takes another swipe at me with the pry bar, missing my contorting body, but connecting hard with the branches of the Christmas tree. Styrofoam flocking explodes, raining down in cottage cheesy bits. Flecks of porcelain and glass shower the room as the next swing and miss of the bar clears out most of the carnival goers. Through the black scarf, cinched around his mouth, my, he calls me leech, soul sucker, the usual. He swings the pry bar again, the slash of the air skimming my head as I dive for the floor. Sometimes these people want me in the hospital. Sometimes they want me in an urn. Jury's still out on which camp this guy's coming from. My shoulder mashes into the twinkling bed of decorative shrapnel dusting the carpet. The side of my body skidding red trails through fragments of carousels and vintage clown parts. It's Armageddon in Christmas Village. Entire lengths of cobblestone streets upended. The polyester batting and fiber-filled snow torn off the stacked cardboard boxes underneath. The whole illusion of a perfect town nestled in the snowy tears of a Swiss mountain wonderland gone. 
totally gone to shit. A few huffing breaths between us, an unspoken truce. We're both inspecting the chunks of carolers and jolly St. Nick bits pocked along the side of me, skin shredded, blood leaking. The intruder says, oh, Jesus. A trickle of the red stuff and Mr. Attacker's going queasy. A flash of empathy that gives him away. He doesn't have the sickness. His internal math works itself out in front of me. This is a real human being. That's real pain I'm inflicting. It's an easy tell to spot when you've visited the prison cages as many times as I have. Concrete and institutional cream steel like forgotten milk. Not exactly dog kennels, but the handcuff man you're visiting isn't exactly a human. I've met with brains that don't make those simple connections to mercy. Talked politics with mass murderers. Chatted about the weather with serial killers. I've heard remorse. I've heard men beg for parole, hungry to feel the windpipe of just one more girl go flat under their fingers. Sometimes that connection lapsed for one unforgivable act. Sometimes it's a call carelessly kicked to a voicemail they'll never check. My attacker's shown he's all soft side, so I haul myself up. He doesn't have the deadness between the eyes that I can unconsciously tune into. Spot that limit, that little demon that sets up camp in the... He bashes me with the pry bar just behind my ear where a skull meets neck. A blunt shot. Fireworks behind my eyes. I'll have Fogarty's money, I tell him from the floor again. Holding my thumping head. Rolling. Getting a fresh coat of crushed holiday decor. Breading myself in ceramic razor flakes. I say, the next art show's coming up. I have until the end of the month. That was the deal. The beating on pause, he says, huh? He doesn't want my blood money. Swinging his boot into my crotch, mashing me right in the ball, he says he wouldn't take a dime of my profits I've milked from the miseries of others, money sown in the fields of human suffering. Preachy, but his soapbox isn't so high that it keeps him from kicking a guy when he's already down. (laughs) Numbing out the pounding behind my eyes and my tenderized genitals, I pull focus on the wallpaper of photocopied faces stapled to the dining room wall. Reams of copy paper shellacked all over, layers stapled to my doors, duct taped and glued onto the windows, every sheet's the over-photocopied face of a girl. Not a maybe-boys-aren't-so-icky-aged girl, but just past that. Hundreds of recopied pages of this, I just got my first car girl, smiling, with her wonky teeth and freckled cheeks. And next to each of these smiling faces cropped right beside on the 11-inch page is the same happy girl's face, but eggshell white. Pupils rolled up behind her long eyelashes, an electrical cord wrapped around her neck so tightly it's almost crushed to the size of her wrists, bound behind her naked body, and I should totally know her name. Her hair's matted to the side of her face, and even in the cruddy monochrome you can tell her twisted body is discarded someplace wet. Piled with leaves and swampy earth. A hurried trench I know Tory Weatherman dug with a folding spade from his trunk. I know because he told me himself. The perfectly alive her spliced next to her crime scene photo. The place where the police found her. You're going to take this the wrong way, but this is actually great news. About the intruder, not the girl. It means my trespasser in the night isn't one of Fogarty's groupies his collection agents. It means he's just a standard member of my anti-fan club. This makes the chances of me not getting murdered tonight a lot better. On the threat level chart of my regular assailants, this group is generally ranked blue. There are three weapon stashes in the room for me to consider. 
bear mace and centerpiece of tall Jesus candles on the coffee table, collapsible steel baton tucked under couch cushion, shotgun and umbrella stand. With each time guys like Scarface have broken into my house, new strategies get put in place until almost every room has a hidden cache of objects to crack skulls in the name of self-defense. Brass knuckles in the Mrs. Claus cookie tin in the kitchen. Three-inch folding knife taped under the wet bar downstairs in the living room. Every break-in grows the collection by an item or three. Chelsea. Her name is Chelsea Shitface. Teeing off again, my guy decimates the post office building. Chelsea, God, that's right. I want to tell him there are 14 other girls' names to remember that they kind of blur together after a while, but I'm thinking that shutting up is the way to go right this moment. The general store is demolished, flattened. The pry bar keeps drawing up to the popcorn ceiling, crashing down on the cotton-draped main street as peaceful ceramic townsfolk whip off, whip off in every direction. Chelsea, blood sucker, candy store, gone. Chelsea, you leech, ice skating rink, destroyed. We walked in on the intruders early this time, before they got a chance to finish their mission. Pasting up all the photocopies and spray-painting eater of human misery across the walls, sucker of Satan's cock, or sometimes just piece of shit if they aren't feeling poetic, always in bright red, as if it's in blood, yeah, you get it. If it wasn't Chelsea's face plastered everywhere, it'd be Stephanie's or Aaron's or Rochelle's, why don't I get credit for the names I do remember? Walls blasted with another teenage girl's grinning yearbook or graduation photo, butted right up against the forensic photographer's picture of them with their life choked clean out. Packed into a drainage pipe or floating in a lake with Tori Weatherman's half-assed wading attempts strapped to their torsos. The girl's very last photo. Young and vibrant next to strangled and thrown away. Reduced to being just another Weatherman casualty. Another set of parents that read a victim impact statement on the courtroom podium, so ironed out and articulate the night before, degenerating into frothing wrath and spit when they met eyes with their daughter's killer on the day. TV cameras zooming in to soak up all the vitriol and feed it to the millions tuned in, eyes glued. I want to ask my intruder, how is what I do all that different than those cameras? Ask him, really, aren't I just the supply to the demand? Isn't the demand what he's really mad at? Watching him lay waste to the miniature winter wonderland, I choose to hold off on my philosophical debate. The end. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. That was great, Neil. Thank you. I feel like I got lots of good ideas about where to conceal weapons in the house. Next up is Lindsay Drager, who's a new instructor at Lighthouse, and I'm always heartened when our new instructors find someone they connect with so much that they want to nominate them for the draft. Um, she is a DU recruit. We get a lot of our instructors from the excellent DU PhD program. Her first novel, The Sorrow Proper, just came out from Dazank, and we're really excited. I don't know if that's really how you say it. Is it really? I am that good, you guys. Introducing her student, Corey. Come on up, Lindsay. So I had um, sort of themed our intermediate short story workshop on 
failure in fiction. And um, Corey's stories kept succeeding, so you kind of screwed, <laughs> screwed up the theme of the course. <laughs> no, but it's my, it's my um, privilege and pleasure to introduce her today. In an age of short stories that first and foremost entertain, Corey Dahl is a writer who uses fiction to discomfort and dis-ease in order to illustrate how all our experiences are inherently uncanny and surreal. Corey's work takes on heavy, rather dark issues, women who are barren, men who are stalked, babies who are kidnapped, and delivers them through voices that are snarky, ironic, satirical, and at times overtly comic. Her work is set in a 21st century suburban landscape that reimagines and recasts the conventional haunted house as the neighborhood picnic or the office cubicle. As such, her stories range in genre from a kind of workplace absurdism to the domestic grotesque, so that I think of these wild literary mix-up when I read her. Lori Moore meets Brett Easton Ellis, Grace Paley meets Brian Evanson, Joyce Carol Oates meets Robert Coover. No matter the environment, a neighborhood, an office, a playground at a park, there is always an attention to the bizarre workings of humans coming together in spaces governed by particular behavioral codes. Corey's work first explores this phenomenon, then attempts to challenge these social norms by exhibiting the thrill and horror unleashed when those codes are abused. Her narrators are women who go to the extremes to reach their dreams, whether that's acquiring the perfect husband or creating the ideal child. And in this way, we find ourselves empathizing with villains and rooting for antagonists because we come to realize by the story's close, they are not so different than us. As the narrator of Corey's short story, Nugget, puts it, quote, we all have our vices. By turns magical and monstrous, with characters very funny and very flawed, Corey Dahl's fiction forces us to face the bizarre experience of being caught fly-like in the web of being human. We first laugh at the absurdity of the challenge and only then cringe at the crimes we commit against each other and, more disturbingly, ourselves in an effort to escape. I'm grateful to have been haunted by Corey Dahl's stories these last eight weeks, and I welcome her to the podium to haunt us. Wow. Well, that was really nice, and now I'm going to disappoint all of you. Um, So... uh, and I should like preface all of this by saying I am severely nervous right now. So if I do something like super weird or awkward, just like we're just gonna keep going, just pretend it didn't happen, and uh, and that's that. Okay, okay. So this is called um, nougat. I keep a bowl of candy on my desk. It's a plain beige bowl with the words yum 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 written all around the rim. Inside, it's filled with shiny wrappers, which are filled with chocolates, which are filled with caramel or peanut butter or nougat, whatever the hell that is. Throughout the day, my coworkers stop by, always making excuses. Laura, I'll tell you what, today has just been a shit show. I had a salad for lunch, so... Or they wait for me to leave, walk down the hall to the bathroom, run out to pick up a sandwich, and then they lurk in, grab a few pieces unnoticed. I never judge, though. I nod. I listen to their stories. I smile. We all have our vices, I say. I like kids, watching them. Not in a gross way. I go to the park, and I sit on a slatted bench that's close to the playground, but not right next to it. I bring a book like I'm reading, but I'm not. Sometimes a mom will ask me, which one's yours? And I'll say, oh, that one, and gesture in the direction of a cluster. 
the overalls. At any given playground, there are at least three kids wearing overalls. No one ever bothers to ask for specifics. They don't actually care. What I don't say at the playground, because you don't say the stuff at the playground, none of them are mine. I don't even have the equipment to make them. Not that long ago, my doctor found a growth, then the specialist found it too, then the surgeon removed it. Your chances of getting cancer now are quite, quite low, he told me when he was done. I was playing with this plastic model of a pelvis on his desk, the kind where you can remove the pieces. I took out what he'd taken out, the uterus, the two tiny ovaries, the fallopian tubes, and cradled them in the lap of my skirt. In the middle of the model, there was this big black cavity now. And my chances of having children are even lower, I said, but I'm bump. I told my husband six months before the operation that I wasn't sure about kids. Think of all the things we'd miss, I'd said. Life is funny that way. Michael was like the others at first. He'd stop by once a day, shyly grab a mini Snickers. We'd chat for a few, minute, a few minutes about the weather, weekend plans, the routine villainy of Mondays. But soon he started coming twice a day, three times, four, hourly. Instead of one candy, he'd take two, sometimes a handful. Our chats became how are yous, became friendly waves, became casual head nods. These days, his comings and goings are as constant and innocuous as the quiet drone of NPR in the next cubicle over. Sometimes I hear the rustle of a rapper, catch his leg disappearing out my door. Most of the time, I don't even look up. He keeps helping himself, and it's not helping himself, you know. Trent tells me one day, sipping coffee out of a mug that says, save the drama for your llama, and watching Michael's big and tall khakis waddle back to his own office. Trent has the cheekbones of an asshole, which is appropriate. Which is appropriate because he is one. I hear his wife left him, he tells me, and comes in my cubicle, leans against my filing cabinet like this is something we should talk about for a while. One day they're buying a house together, the next poof, she's running off to Williston, North Dakota, with the realtor. North Dakota? Yeah, all that oil shale, you know, those houses are filling up before they even build them. Real estate gold mine. I think about Mike and his new empty house, wandering around the rooms he bought for a family that didn't exist yet and never will. Tragic, right? Trent rolls his eyes and reaches for a piece of candy. I move the bowl and tell him to get out. <laughs> At the playground, one of the moms has a new baby. It's her fourth kid, which to me just feels like overkill. The fertility equivalent of spiking the ball. She's chosen to use only names that start with the letter Z, so we all listen as she runs after the older kids, baby carrier bumping against her hip, yelling things like, Zach, goose poop is not a toy. Or, Ezekiel, Zara, what did I say? Don't pretend you don't know what I said. What did I say? I said no. The baby's name is Ziana, but I call her Penny. If I had a baby, which I don't, I think it would look like her. My blue eyes, my husband's curly brown hair, she could easily pass for our own child. We've talked about adoption. We can't afford it. These kids are out of our price range, I told my husband, paging through brochures like we were discussing a washer-dryer set. Plus, there's that whole resemblance factor, taking family pictures where everyone's a long-legged blonde except, except stumpy, mousy Timmy, watching Sally crinkle her nose in a way that's entirely different than the way you crinkle your nose. But then I look at Penny, who shares no relation to me, and I swear she has my thumbs. On Monday, I walk in on Michael crying in the break room, and it's too late to turn around, use the vending machine in the lobby instead. He's already spotted me. He's at a table accompanied by a pizza, of which he's already eaten half. It's 10 a.m. 
Michael, I see. Really? He looks up at me, eyes red, a dab of unwiped sauce on his chin. He's worked up some kind of meat sweat, and his hair is glued to his forehead. I sit down and pat his arm. He stares at the wall, studying OSHA posters and a potluck sign-up sheet from two years ago. After a while, he says, We are Swiss cheese people. What? I say, who is? All of us. I wonder if this is some sort of mental break or a stroke. My aunt saw giraffes when she had hers. Reticulation, she told me later, and then she leaned in close, whispered like she was letting me in on an ancient secret. It means spots. But then he goes on. We're like the cheese, he says, mostly solid but with a bunch of holes. Okay, I say, leave it to Michael to form a life philosophy that's entirely food-based. So we spend our time trying to fill those holes, he says. He's sobbing now, his tie is slick with tears, with people and things. He reaches for the pizza box, and for a second, I think he's going to shove it off the table. Instead, he grabs another slice. And food, he says, through a mouthful of cheese. He drops the pizza to the table, rests his head on it. I reach out and rub his back, the way my mom would after I'd thrown up, voided all my contents into our toilet. Michael rears up. I just want to fill my holes. He's ripping the crust into pieces now, throwing it at the wall. Then he throws the whole pizza, the pizza box, his soggy paper plate. I just have to keep filling and filling and filling. The noise has drawn a crowd now, hovering at the break room door behind him. I try to shoo them away, but they remain. Someone's filming it with their phone. He collapses again, his face pancaked against the table, his arms dangling at his sides. I go back to rubbing his back. It rises and falls with each air gulping sob. It's okay, I say, though I can't back this statement up with facts or examples. Things are going to be okay. At some point, I start buying baby clothes. Diapers, tiny socks. I'm planning to donate them to the shelter or maybe the hospital, but I don't bring them home with me because my husband would make me actually do that. Instead, I store them under my desk in the space where your feet are supposed to go. After a while, I can't push my chair in all the way. What's your little girl's name, a clerk asks me one day while ringing up the tiny summer dress I've just purchased. I could say anything. It's for a friend, or my niece, actually, Robert. What I do say is Penny. Michael takes a sabbatical not long after the pizza incident. Anchor management, says one coworker, grabbing a Twix. North Dakota, says another. Fat camp, says Trent. I go from buying six bags of candy a week to one a month. We keep getting those days, the ones where the clouds hang out, filling up with water until they're dark and heavy and round. They get where they can't hold it anymore, and all of a sudden it's raining. Like the weather in it, like the weather is governed not by pressure and humidity, but by some toddler with a pee pants problem. It's a day like that on Tuesday, and the playground's nearly empty. Madam Overy is there, though, with her abundance of kids. They even have friends with them this time. I'm pretending to read a cheap paperback about something, but it could be upside down for all I know. Penny's in her carrier next to her mom's feet, and she's batting at those soft rattles you hang from the handle on strings. That's when the fight breaks out. Zach or Ezekiel or one of their friends has punched another kid on the far side of the playground, and now they're all smacking each other. Something to do with a ball. Their mom sprints across the field to break it up. Suddenly it's just me and the baby, and I don't even think about it. I scoop her into my arms and fold her between the sides of my jacket. She's warm and smells like mushy cereal. I take a step toward the parking lot. The fight is still going. I won't even have to run. With each step, I wait for some kind of alarm to sound, for an inner voice to speak up, for someone to stop me. Why isn't anyone stopping me? Penny is warm against my chest, and I can feel her tiny socked feet against my t-shirt. 
I think about what I'll tell my husband, how we'll explain this sudden addition to our family. Giveaway? I think about Penny's mom leading stoic press conferences and marshes where search parties have turned up nothing. I think about the jury that will find me guilty and send me to prison, where I'll have to eat things like gruel and do all my pooping right out in the open for everyone to see. I think about how little Penny weighs, but how full she feels here in my arms. I click the keychain button that unlocks my car doors. I'm opening the back door when I think about Michael. He's sitting at his desk with his candies, each one gliding down his throat on a stream of melting chocolate and gooey caramel. When he finishes, he closes his eyes and smiles, picks up another. And at the end of the day, when his desk is littered with once shiny wrappers turned dull and inside out, he thinks, I'm hungry. I shut the door, put the baby back on my hip, and relock the car. The thing about Swiss cheese is it has to have holes. The end. <laughs> You spent like three years on that, did you? No. <laughs> Corey's part of the um, book project at Lighthouse. Are you working with Erica? Yeah. So you're part of the Dorkel Heart um, house. Wow, I can't wait to read your collection. That's, that's amazing. Um, and I'm really glad I'm a vegetarian so I don't have meat sweat. <laughs> Um, so the next person, um, his instructor is Emily Sinclair, who unfortunately is like in France or something. I mean, fortunately for her, but not for us. Um, so she sent her introduction. She taught the non-traditional forms class um, here at Lighthouse. And here's what she had to say about Cameron Snyder. In the George Saunders story, Sea Oak, kindly Aunt Bernie has spent her life taking care of others and working at dispiriting, low-paying jobs. She's known for looking on the bright side, but when she, then she dies, leaving behind her mostly slovenly nieces and nephews before coming wrathfully back to life, a furious zombie whose arms and legs fall off, who wants everything she never had, money, sex, power. From our reading of this story came the first assignment for our class. Write a very short story with one fantastic, that is, outrageous, impossible element. Paying particular attention to the ways that the fantastic heightens a character's seemingly ordinary feelings. On our first night of our non-traditional forms class, everyone came in asking, who's Cameron? Everyone had read the story and sent in exercises to read and discuss, yet Cameron's really stood out. We loved the outrageousness and raunchy humor, but the real power of the story comes from the voice, the, narrator, the narrator's tone, which is relentless in its telling and oh-so-smart captures something real about love and disappointment, even as we're peppered with shotgun-style details. It's a love story that ends badly. In fact, it begins and goes on badly, but it's one we couldn't stop reading and thinking about. For all its craziness shamelessly delivered, it's got the most important thing a story can have, the ring of truth. Go, Cameron.
Those stories were great, guys. That was that was good stuff. Um, I've never done this before, so. Uh, this story is called Lovers. Um, I've been living in my girlfriend's pantry for the past three months. I say three months because after what felt like a week, I just started guessing the days. Could be less, could be more. And I say girlfriend because, well, she feeds me, greases me up, and fucks me in ways I've never even known possible, all in this lightless, lonely food room. It smells like stale tortilla chips in here. Stale stale tortilla chips fused with the stench of my own putrid semen. I say semen because at the climax of our spiked leather trysts, I usually end up spraying it all over the soup cans and cereal boxes, and I have no way to clean it up. So, like a jungle of my stringy seed, the pantry reeks of onanistic sadness. (laughs) Truth be told, I don't even know how I ended up here in the first place. The last thing I remember before waking up in this mystery in this mysterious room as a bulky woman uh, with Boldikean attributes handing me a drink at my favorite bar, Shark Spit in Malibu, CA. I don't remember what kind of drink it was or even the color of it for that matter. I do remember the color of her eyes, though. Pure black, like two obsidian moons where only darkness lives. Darkness and aggressive sex devoid of human emotion. <laughs> my name used to be Larry, Larry McArdle. People respected me. Strong-willed and charismatically fortified, I held my own. But that was during my time out there. Here, I have no real name. I'm addressed by a superfluity of titles, most of them being hurtful, derogatory names that my girlfriend comes up, during, comes up with during sex time, but mostly I'm just called Loverboy, which I find quite endearing. <laughs> Four months prior to this, I lived in a Malibu villa on the beachfront, where I observed dolphin and jet ski exist together harmoniously in a cerulean blue paradisi- <laughs> <Damn it. laughs> paradisiacal world of un- un- unending joy. Some might say that I was well-to-do, and as the number two-rated jet ski salesman on the western seaboard, I might dare to say the same. Money came easy, girls came free. And according to the Progress Evaluator feature on my Powerlessness is for the Powerless and the Powerless Don't Succeed 60-day audio cassette self-help program, (laughs) I was only a few steps away from attaining Salesman Satori. Then all this happened. Now, money is irrelevant, as are names and Salesman Satori. My girlfriend has never told me her name, but I secretly call her Brenda in my head. Brenda, baby, my sweet, sweet captor. She is the only human being I've seen since being locked in here, and I don't see her face because she's always wearing one of those leather Mexican wrestling masks when she comes in. The mask is black. Everything in here is black. She's quite brusque and makes porcine grunting sounds while she has her way with me. I've never put up a struggle because I fear it would only create unsavory discrepancies that would ultimately lead me to some variety of pain. Her arms are large and veins bulge out like pulsating rivers beneath a sheet. She's a whistler and a hummer, and judging by the pitch and tone of her vocal orchestrations, I'd say she's about 86% tone deaf. I can hear her out there humming away, always that same damn wrong tune, or the same damn, sorry, same damn, damn song in the wrong tune, Working for the Weekend by You Know Who. She loves toys, and by toys I mean the rubbery phallic kind with sleek ergonomic designs. She makes me use them on her and some she uses on me. She loves the studded rubber cock ring best of all, which is unfortunate because I hate the studded rubber cock ring most of all. 
It's really quite painful using that thing, but this is her world, and I am her prisoner, and I must obey her rules. <laughs> Every so often, she'll have a test for me. She likes me to remain able-bodied and mentally astute so that I'm not just some pale, limp dick in a pantry with no coital ambition. <laughs> her favorite test is the hard-boiled egg test, which I've actually never passed. With no warning, she'll swing open the door, and I'll cower back into my corner and shield my eyes from the scorching light, and then she'll kick in a metal bowl full of hard-boiled eggs. Then she slams the door, and that's when the test begins. It's a test of dexterity, of gentleness. She wants my fingers to move like adroit cephalopods over her ego, her eager, pu- damn it, I fucked it up. Her eager, eager pudendum, pu- pudendum, <laughs> touching her just right, just how she likes it. But ever since that jet ski accident involving an Iranian speedboat and my ex-wife, my hands just won't steady out. They shake like avocado trees in a tropical storm. This makes peeling hard-boiled eggs incredibly difficult. They all end up mutilated with chunks missing, and when Brenda comes in and to check to see how I, and checks to see how I failed, she grabs the bowl of eggs and shakes her head in disapproval. Then she leaves me again, and I'm left alone, all covered in eggshells. But lately. There have been sounds coming from the vent behind the canned goods. The sound is a voice of indeterminate origin and gender, and it goes on and on, sometimes for days, haranguing about a life once lost and a life soon to begin anew. Sometimes it sounds like it's reciting chapters from The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, my favorite book, (laughs) only it's all backwards, so I can't understand a goddamn word of it. Sometimes it sings songs that I only vaguely recognize as hymns from when my stepdad would take me to church with him so he could check out the, p- the pale ankles on all the little choir girls. Though this morning, the voice changed its direction and started on something new, something evil. While I sat around, attempting hopelessly to read a soup can label with my fingertips, the voice chimed in, lower than usual, like a whispery chain-smoking bull- bullfrog. Hey there, lover boy, it said. <laughs> I've got an idea about how to get your sorry ass out of here. Just leave me alone, voice, I said. Brenda needs me and I need her. Then the voice grew louder. Listen to me, you pathetic sex pony. If you stay cooped up in this sensory-deprived cubbyhole for another week, you'll completely lose your shit. You'll go flat-out bonkers, man. How much more can you honestly take from that vile mass she-male anyway? She's not a she-male, I retorted. That's what you think. Just then, it let out a tremendous belch that reverberated throughout the pantry, rustling the foil chip bags above my head. Then, there was nothing. But maybe it had a point. What kind of man would I be if I spent the rest of my days a prisoner in a pantry as a sex sex object for a woman that I don't know emotionally, that I don't know cosmically? After spending all day today lost in contemplative stupor, I addressed the voice. All right, I say. What's this plan of yours? With a mellifluous tone, it speaks... Thought you might come around, lover boy. It says, the only way out is to destroy the enemy. The enemy being Brenda, of course, and destroy meaning murder, of course. (laughs) I've never murdered before, and as much as I find Brenda's heinous acts of vulgarity to be highly unpleasant, I don't necessarily want her dead, but the voice tells me that this is the only way, and I believe it. After expounding the plan, the voice falls silent. I hear the distant jangle of a key ring like the tintambulation of church bells somewhere far off in the day. Brenda is home. I collect my wits and I prepare for the plan. I know her routine like the back of my hand that I used to be able to see. 
After launching her suitcase across the room, she goes directly to the coffee maker and makes coffee, where she curses the thing the way she, she oftentimes curses me, calling it an odious whore or a cock-sucking dingus or what have you. <laughs> From there, she does something in the sink that makes the pipe squeal like piglets. Then she opens the pantry door to check in on me to make sure that I'm still alive. Today is no different. After the squealing stops, I grab the sharpest tortilla chip I can find from the family-sized bag at my feet and clench it in my fist, sharpest end poking out. As her cowboy-booted feet slowly clack toward the pantry door, the voice starts in, though this time it's my own voice. Do it, 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 do it. The door flies open. The eclipsing silhouette of Brenda's body stands starkly contrasted against the blinding light of day. I squint my eyes hard and lunge toward the massive black figure, stabbing, jabbing the tortilla chip into where I hope her jugular is. We stumble out of the pantry onto the tile floor, squirming around, blood squirting from the gaping wound in Brenda's neck where the few morsels of tortilla chips surround it. She kicks me with the sharp metallic tip of her, of her cowboy boot, catching me perfectly in the sternum. I fall to the floor, wheezing, gasping for air. I hear her garbled, blood-laced murmurings as she slowly relaxes into a flaccid pile of death. I manage to lift my head from my supinated position, and I see Brenda is dead, her mask is brown, and then I remember Long Island iced tea. awesome. Was that an American dream or a nightmare? (laughs) Thank you. That was great. Um, So our grand finale is um, a reading by a screenwriter. And the instructor, you may remember, she used to as a day job, in addition to writing her own screenplays, she used to work at Lighthouse and was like the most popular person at Lighthouse. Everybody loved her. She's Canadian. Um, Jenny Taylor Whitehorn. I started hearing from, she would take workshops and I started hearing from her instructors. She is awesome. I don't even know why she's taking these classes. She's amazing. And um, so here's the story. Jenny has a postgraduate degree in television writing and production from Humber College, which is up, up north, Canada. Um, in Toronto, where she received the Brian Linehart Award for our Outstanding Artistic Achievement. Uh, she's worked on various Canadian television shows, and I had to get this in there, such as So You Think You Can Dance Canada. Um, and she acted as assistant to the Director of Development at Magi TV. Um, she has optioned and developed projects with production companies such as Upfront Entertainment and Monica Parker Productions, and she's coming up to introduce her student, Ryan. Um, I did work here before, and I should have known that everyone would have such beautiful introductions to their people, so I have to apologize, Ryan, and I took a minute and scribbled some stuff here. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, so I taught a class called The Full Draft here, and the idea was to finish a full, screen, a full draft of a screenplay in eight weeks. And um, Ryan completed this whole screenplay in the first eight weeks. Um, I was really lucky that the whole class was full of such generous and talented writers, and um, especially, you know, Ryan, especially Ryan. Um, 
I was intrigued by Ryan's piece as soon as I read the title. It's called The Little Lebowski. So any Lebowski fans are in for a treat. Um, And it really hasn't stopped intriguing me and surprising me since. Ryan writes fearlessly. He's not afraid to go there and push his characters all the way to their limits into the absurd. And it's something I so admire about his work. Um, The Little Lebowski has so many great payoffs for Lebowski fans, and he would do the Coen brothers proud. Um, But what's so impressive, I think, about this script is that under all the humor and all the hilarious references is that it really is a boy looking, it really is a touching and sweet story about a boy looking for his dad. Um, So enjoy. (laughs) First of all, I want to say thank you to Jenny. Was, who, who really was an amazing instructor throughout this whole process. Um, and we're really sorry to see you, that you're leaving. It's, it's very sad. We but wish you. We're coming back. We're keeping her husband. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. So that she has to come back. That's true. In a closet with tortilla chips? Yeah. <laughs> He's in there right now. And thanks to my classmates, some of whom are here for reading tonight and for supporting me through this whole script writing process. So any big Lebowski fans in the audience tonight? Okay. Awesome. So my script is called My script is called The Little Lebowski and I always dreamt of writing the sequel to The Big Lebowski. And I actually wrote, you know, about half of that and then I had kind of an epiphany when I read that the Coen brothers said they would never actually make the sequel. (laughs) And I believe them because they always move on to new work. So this is my attempt to create the next best thing, which is a celebration of all the things we love about the Big Lebowski framed inside of a a totally different story. So here's the... This is the first half of the first act of The Little Lebowski. Fade in... Interior, Ralph's Grocery Store, night. Young Jeff Lebowski, age 12, waits, waits at the pharmacy counter wearing sunglasses. His hair is long and unkempt. He wears a Medina Sod bowling shirt, Bermuda shorts, and sandals. He stares at a buzzing neon RX sign. Here you go, Jeff. How's your mom doing? Thanks. She's abiding. Well, let her know this is her last refill, Okay. And give these to her. She drops a small bottle into Jeff's hand. The label reads, oxycodone hydrochloride. <laughs> take, as needed, take as needed for pain. Jeff drops it into his pocket. The pharmacist gestures like she is talking on the phone and mouths the words, tell her to call me. Far out, man. <laughs> on the dairy aisle, Jeff opens and sniffs a carton of half and half, leaving cream on the tip of his nose. At the checkout stand, Jeff peeks over his shades as he writes a check for $1.69. He dates it March 19, 2003. The name on the check is M. Lebowski in Medina, California. A small TV behind the register shows George W. Bush at his Oval Office desk announcing the start of the Second Iraq War. We will not live at the mercy of an outlaw regime that threatens the peace with weapons of mass destruction. (laughs) Jeff tears off the check and hands it over. Got ID? He hands her a Ralph's card. You're Matilda? It's Maude. No, man, she's right out there. 
He points outside to a dingy green Chevette in the first handicapped spot. Maud Lebowski, age 33, slumps against the driver's window, maybe asleep, maybe dead. <laughs> Exterior Ralph's parking lot night. Jeff taps the driver's window gently. Maud slowly awakens, bleary and mascara streaked. She slides over and collapses into the passenger seat. Jeff climbs in and starts the car. He can barely see over the steering wheel. He drives slowly out of the parking lot and pulls into traffic. Other cars pass him in a rush, honking. At a stoplight, a cop car pulls up behind the Chevette. Only the headrest is visible on the driver's side. Maud's slumped silhouette on the passenger side. The light turns green and the Chevette pulls away. Officer Young, age 35, lights up his cherries and taps his siren. Jeff continues slowly into a rundown neighborhood. Mom, Mom, wake up. He makes a screeching turn into a driveway and slams the brakes as he takes out a mailbox. Several letters scatter. The car stops in front of a dilapidated bungalow. Officer Young arrives. He picks up a handful of letters from the street. They are all addressed to the dude and marked return to sender. Young approaches the driver's side to find Maud awake and behind the wheel. Jeff sits calmly in the passenger seat. Hello, Mrs. Lebowski. Jeffrey, I picked up your mail. (laughs) Maud hands the letters over to Jeff. Thank you, Officer Young. Nice to see you again. What seems to be the problem this evening? Oh. He glances back at the mailbox wreckage in the street. Oh, let's see. Um, well, uh, destruction of uh, federal property, for starters. Um, underage driving. A failure to signal a turn. Well, as you can see, Officer, it is my property I've destroyed, which you must agree I am more than entitled to do. And last time I checked, I am certainly of age, but I do sometimes forget those silly little signals. She leans towards him provocatively and winks. Jeff, go on in the house and watch your movie. I'll be a minute. <laughs> Interior Lebowski house night. A pet ferret sits patiently on a large rug in the living room. Jeff scoops him up. Hello, Hello Carl, Carl Hungus. Hungus. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff retreats down the hall to his room. Above his bed is a big Lebowski movie poster. The dude looks down reverently in his cardigan sweater alongside a militant Walter. Jeff puts the letters into a shoebox where he keeps many other returned letters. He flips on the TV. The news discusses the invasion of Iraq. Jeff slides a big Lebowski VHS tape into an old VCR. On top of the TV is a bowling trophy with the inscription, Southern Cal Bowling League Champions, 1990. He falls onto the bed with Carl Hungus. The opening scene of The Big Lebowski plays. The tumbleweed bounds towards Los Angeles as Sam Elliott's voiceover begins. Way out west there was a fella, a fella I want to tell you about, a fella by the name of Jeff Lebowski. <laughs> Jeff closes his eyes on the bed and drifts off. Later, Maud knocks gently at the ajar door. Jeff comes to. On the TV, the scene plays where the dude meets Maud at her loft. Jeff and Maud assume the characters and quote the lines perfectly. Do you like sex, Mr. Lebowski? Excuse me? Sex. The physical act of love. Coitus. Do you like it? I was talking about my rug. (laughs) You're not interested in sex? 
You mean coitus? <laughs> they laugh together. Jeff shuts off the movie. Did you get the tickets? No, just another warning. I need a drink. At the living room bar, Jeff expertly mixes a white Russian with Kahlua and the half and half. Maud tears open the pharmacy bag. The bottle reads Klonopin. That's all there is? Pharmacist also sent these. He reaches into his pocket and tosses her the oxy bottle. Oh, lovely. She takes the drink and pops a couple of pills, then lays down on the couch and takes a hit from a bowling pin pipe. Don't forget our appointment with Dr. Donaldson this morning. Yes, Dr. Donaldson. He's a good man and thorough. She coughs and sputters smoke, then passes out. Jeff covers her and kisses her cheek tenderly. Interior psychiatrist's office day. Dr. Donaldson, age 55, sits at his desk and looks through a folder labeled Lebowski. Jeff slumps in a chair opposite. Okay, let's just pick up where we left off last time. What do you know about your dad, Jeff? Well, he was one of the authors of the Port Huron Statement. Oh. The original Port Huron Statement, not the compromised second draft. Oh. The doctor begins to take furious notes. He was in the music business briefly. Oh. Roadie for Metallica, Speed of Sound Tour. Oh. Bunch of assholes. Ever hear of the Seattle Seven? Yes. That was him and six other guys. What else do you know about your father? What did he like to do? Bull. Drive around. The, craze, the occasional acid flashback. Jeff, who is your father? He's a dude. A dude. From the Big Lebowski movie. Yeah, that or his dudeness or duder or El Duderino if you're not into the whole brevity thing. <laughs> In the waiting room, Maud sleeps on a chair. Jeff taps her shoulder. He's ready for you, Mom. Back inside, Maud slumps in the chair opposite, still drowsy. Do you know who his father is? To tell you the truth, Doc, I don't remember much about that time. I was smoking a lot of tie sticks, occupying various administrative buildings, and bowling. Matilda, do you believe his father is this character the dude? No, of course not. But you've let him believe this. How dare you judge me, Doctor? You have no idea what it's like to raise a child on your own. So Jeff has never known his father? I don't know who his father is. The doctor stops writing and lets this sink in. When did you tell Jeff his dad was the dude? I didn't. He got that from the movie. The Big Lebowski. Yes, but I never said it was real. I told him movies aren't real, but they can be about real things. How old was he when you first saw the movie? I took him to see it for his seventh birthday. I loved Fargo and wanted to see the new Coen Brothers movie. (laughs) And the fact that it was about a man named Jeffrey Lebowski made it magical to him. Because he has the same name? Yes. Wait, I have something for you. Maud rifles through her purse and pulls out a crumpled letter. She hands it to the doctor. The doctor examines it carefully. It is addressed to The Dude. 609 Venetia Avenue, Venice, California. Inside on notebook paper in grade school print, a letter reads, Dear Dad, please come home. Mom needs you. Jeff. P.S. I have your bowling trophy. What's this bowling trophy? I won it in a tournament before he was born. He's obsessed with bowling. You told him it was his dad's? I didn't tell him it wasn't. The doctor sighs thoughtfully. Well, it clearly projects a projective father fantasy. You've got to stop encouraging it and help him learn the truth. He won't believe me. He needs to discover for himself that this fantasy is not real. I'll see what I can come up with. 
I also wanted to try these. They should help with ADD and have him focus better in school. She hands her a, a bottle of pills labeled Adderall. Maud examines the label and sees the word amphetamine. Back in the waiting room, Jeff practices his bowling form. With each roll, we hear the pins scatter as he imagines them. Nice roll. Exterior school day. Maud pulls to the curb. Try not to get kicked out of social studies today, okay? Say what you will about the tenets of national socialism. At least it's an ethos. Don't be fatuous, Jeffrey. <laughs> Jeff gets out of the car, closes the door, starts to walk away. Maud lowers the passenger side window. Don't forget your bag. She hands him a heavy bowling ball bag. Bye, Mom. As he walks away, she pops a few Adderall. <laughs> Exterior playground day. Eric Lester, age 12, jumps up and down, reaching for something. He is dressed like Walter from The Big Lebowski. Crew cut, combat boots, safari vest, and aviator glasses. Give it back! A mean kid, Kevin, age 12, holds a bowling ball high above his head. Shut the fuck up, Eric! Give me back my fucking bowling ball now! Hey, give him the ball back, man. Well, if it isn't Dude Jr., what the fuck do you want, Lebowski? Just abiding, man. You need a bowling ball? My mom's got an extra. Kevin drops the ball. It lands on Eric's toe. Eric hops around, screaming in pain. His sunglasses fall into the dirt. Obviously, you're not a golfer. Listen up, little Lebowski. Your friend here might like to go bowling with you, but we think you're both fucking freaks. This aggression will not stand, man. You tell him, dude. This aggression will not stand. Ever since those Al-Qaeda cowards attacked us on our own soil with our own planes, everyone tippy-toes around afraid of their own shadows, especially these fucking amateurs. I don't see a connection to 9-11, man. Well, not a literal connection. (laughs) Two more bullies step up behind Kevin, Michael and Patrick. Why don't you call your daddy to save you? Yeah, pussy. (laughs) (laughs) Michael. (laughs) Michael shoves Jeff to the ground. Enraged. (laughs) Enraged, Eric charges Michael and tries to bring him down. The bullies laugh cruelly as Eric flails on the ground, unable to move him. Better yet, why don't you call your loser mom? Now Jeff loses it. He tries to punch the bullies, but is thwarted at every turn. A sad scene as the bullies continue the torment. The bell rings. Patrick grabs Jeff's bowling ball bag and runs away. The other bullies follow. Shit, man, my bowling ball. Eric helps Jeff to his feet and dusts him off. Don't you worry, dude. We'll get your ball back. Bunch of fucking amateurs. Eric holds up a kid's wallet. Looks like someone won't have his lunch money today. You seen my glasses? My sunglasses? Interior classroom day. The teacher, Mr. Levy, looks on intently as Jeff strolls into the class late again. Mr. Lebowski. Jeff slumps into a seat like he's the dude. Yeah, man. Do you have your homework? Uh... He checks pockets, the floor, looks around. Shit, man. Mr. I, uh... Lebowski. Oh, wait, yeah. My mom smoked it. <laughs> the class laugh. Laughs, Mr. Levy sighs. No, man, really. She ripped off the corners and rolled joints with her boyfriend. Uh, pharmacists. <laughs> Mr. Levy points to the door. 
principal's office now. Jeff hangs his head a moment, then shuffles out. Interior hallway day. Eric stares into his locker at a poster of Tara Reed as Bunny Lebowski. She is poolside in a bikini. He kisses, he kisses his fingers and touches her lips. Bunny. <laughs> a door opens across the hall. Patrick appears wearing Eric's sunglasses. He carries a hall pass and Jeff's bowling ball bag. He walks away down the hall. Eric performs tactical maneuvers. He tiptoes and hides, ducking between the lockers. Jeff steps out of Mr. Levy's classroom. Eric pulls him behind a locker. What the fuck? Shh, dude, wait, wait. He points to Patrick down the hall. Patrick goes into the restroom. I knew that fucking no good. What do we do, man? Follow my lead, dude. Eric stands and uses more tactical hand signals. He motions for Jeff to follow. Interior restroom day. Patrick's feet and the bowling ball bag are visible below a stall. Inside the the stall, Patrick sits on the toilet and turns the bowling ball in his hands, tries his fingers in the holes. Outside the stall, Eric makes more hand signals. Jeff looks at him like, what the fuck? Eric dives under the stall and grabs Patrick's ankles. Patrick screams, take him, dude! Jeff shoves open the stall door. It hits Patrick on the forehead with a thud. Patrick drops the bowling ball, and it makes a crater in the tile floor. Obviously, you're not a golfer. Patrick passes out on the toilet. Jeff takes the ball and bag. Eric takes his sunglasses from Patrick's face and puts them back on, satisfied. Fucking amateurs. Mr. Lebowski? Principal Pepper grabs Jeff and Eric by their collars, drags them out of the restroom. This aggression will not stand, man! Interior Principal's Office Day. Principal Pepper reads from a file. Jeff sits in front of him. I want to see a lawyer, man. Mr. Lubowski, if you are truant one more time this turn, you will be expelled. It's as simple as that. Yeah, well, that's just like your opinion, man. I'm afraid not, sir. These are the rules. Eric hustles past the door in a fit of rage, pursued by a teacher. Ever since those camel fuckers attacked us on our own free soil, no one has had the balls to stand up for the rules. Do we have an understanding? Have it your way, man. Interior school hallway day. Jeff waits by his locker. Eric appears beside him. What'd you get? Detention for a week. You? They want to see Maud. They look at each other knowingly. Not a good thing. Fuck it, dude. Let's go bowling. (laughs) The end. Start preparing the speeches for the Oscars. And I include in that the acting. That was amazing. Let's do one more hand for all the readers. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.